Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse, mass tragedy, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The sun never seemed to rise over South Korea's Yellow Sea on April 16, 2014. The water reflected the dull sky above, conjuring a sheet of dark gray as far as the eye could see. Despite the drab weather, the atmosphere aboard the Sewol ferry was charged with excitement. Hundreds of giddy high school students were headed to the resort island of Jeju. For many of the teens, it was set to be the trip of a lifetime. They would swim off the shores of Hamduk Beach, shop at the Dongmun Market, and hike to Jungbong Waterfall. They could hardly wait to dock. It was a big day for the ferry's crew, too. The usual captain was off-duty, so he'd coached the helmsman to stand in for him. But just before 9 a.m., the driver made a daring hairpin turn, sharper than the captain's recommended five-degree pivot. Suddenly, the ship listed to one side and started taking on water. As frigid waves filled the rig, 476 passengers scrambled to find dry ground all at once. But it was too late. The terrified students huddled together as water flooded the deck. Some held on tight to one another, while others clutched their phones, sending final I love you videos to their loved ones. Meanwhile, the crew struggled to right the boat, but their efforts were in vain. In just under two hours, the ferry sank killing over 300 people. The public was outraged, and the South Korean National Police quickly mobilized to find the ferry's owner. But that was easier said than done, because the owner was known as the millionaire with no face, Yoo Byung-un. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the Evangelical Baptist Church of Korea, or EBC for short. We'll take a look at the ways EBC's co-founder, Yoo Byung-un, used his doctrine to take advantage of his followers. We'll follow Yoo Byung-un on his journey from esteemed religious leader to one of the country's most wanted criminals. We'll also see how one branch of EBC came crashing down in what's known as the Korean Jonestown. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? 
Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Yu Byung-an lived a divided life. He was born in the Japanese capital of Kyoto in 1941 to Korean parents. His family was one of many that were relocated to the country after Japan annexed Korea in 1910. As Yu approached his first birthday, Japan attacked the United States Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. The next day, the U.S. declared war. For the next four years, Yu's family lived in fear of an American attack. In August of 1945, the United States bombed the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The immediate assaults killed over 100,000, eventually reaching a death toll of at least 200,000 due to long-term effects of the atomic bombs. The attacks hastened Japan's surrender. In turn, the U.S. and Soviet Union occupied the country and its colonies, including South Korea. That meant four-year-old Yu and his family were finally able to return to their ancestral homeland. They settled on the Korean Peninsula. Although Yu's early childhood was spent under siege with limited resources, he had grand ambitions for his future. He loved art and longed to become a great sculptor, the likes of Michelangelo. There was just one issue. Soon after returning to South Korea, he developed a severe bout of tuberculosis. At the time, antibiotics were difficult to come by, and short of removing a lung, there wasn't much a doctor could do to treat the infection. As a result, he was forced into quarantine for months on end as a young child. During this period, Yu wasn't allowed to go to school, and his interactions with others were extremely limited. He certainly couldn't make any friends his own age, and it's likely that he barely saw his own family. The experience had a profound psychological impact. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, she is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In a 2020 review of more than 63 prior studies and articles on social isolation, Doctor of Clinical Psychology Maria Lodes and her co-authors discussed its effects on children. Their review found a strong correlation between the duration of social isolation and loneliness with mental health symptoms like depression and anxiety. It's hard to know the exact consequences of Yu's early quarantine on his mental state. What we do know is that the young boy leaned into his isolation, and perhaps because of the solitude, his creative talents took flight on their own. For Yu, art was likely an escape, allowing him to travel beyond the walls of his room. He drew detailed sketches of his surroundings and painted vivid landscapes for hours at a time. He also learned to sculpt and eventually even mastered traditional Korean mask-making. As Yu became more involved with his artwork, his desire for social interaction dwindled. At one point, he must have started to believe that he didn't need anyone else. The kids his age were just regular school children to him. Yu wanted to feel special. He told himself he'd rather spend his days with renowned artists like Michelangelo. 
As Yu grew older, his passion only intensified. Once he was healthy enough, he got involved in more physical disciplines like martial arts. He ended up earning his black belt in Taekwondo. But as always, Yu wasn't satisfied to simply squeak by. From there, he experimented with creating his own exercise regimens and self-defense practices. There, he may have finally come out of his shell. Sometime after graduating high school around 1959, he met and married a woman named Kwan Yun Ja. Within a few years, the couple had two bouncing boys and a girl. Yu's new father-in-law, Pastor Kwan Shin Chan, was a man of deep faith. It's likely that meeting the pastor impacted Yu's views on religion. As far as we know, spirituality wasn't a huge aspect of his life up to that point. But as he developed a closer relationship with Pastor Kwan, things started to change. Over the next few years, Yu studied Christianity under Pastor Kwan's tutelage. He adopted his mentor's beliefs, which slightly differed from those of the mainstream church. Over time, those views became more sophisticated, and the two men decided to share their vision with others. And so, in 1962, the duo co-founded the Evangelical Baptist Church of Korea, or EBC for short. But what may have started out as a well-meaning push to spread the word of God to friends and neighbors would soon turn into something much more sinful. Coming up, you transforms his church into a cash cow. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1962, 21-year-old Yu Byung-un and his father-in-law created the Evangelical Baptist Church of Korea. Pastor Kwan was their main religious leader. Yu acted more as a mentor and business manager, though he sometimes stepped in to give sermons himself. Early on, the men sought to distinguish EBC from other similar Christian denominations 
One of their founding tenets focused heavily on repentance. Apparently, they thought it was totally unnecessary. EBC disregarded the notion of apologizing for past mistakes and striving to do better in the future. Instead, they preached a somewhat backwards version of the typical Christian dogma. You and Pastor Kwan maintain that if one is saved by God, any and all sins will be forgiven. According to EBC doctrine, one could be saved by simply joining the group, with no atonement necessary. In essence, just being a member of EBC ensured a direct path to heaven. With such an appealing message, Yu had set the EBC up for quick success. He focused on expanding the church while also indulging his other ambitions on the side. As the church became more popular, the organization needed a large physical space for worship. To accommodate his followers, Yu and his family built a sprawling rural compound and base called Gumsu Wan, about 50 miles south of Seoul. Yu and his family lived at the compound, as did some EBC members. Non-believers were reportedly banned from the property. The farm was kept as productive as possible because the EBC claimed that labor was also a path to salvation. Although there are limited details available about the compound, we know the group maintained a freshwater fish farm and raised catfish, carp, and eels. As more members joined EBC and moved to Gumsu Wan, the amenities grew. They reportedly constructed an on-site auditorium that could hold as many as 5,000 people. Day after day, the acolytes lived and worked together, finding solace in the knowledge that only they would be saved when the apocalypse came. They were said to believe that even devotees of other Christian denominations would be destroyed when Christ returned. But guaranteed admittance to heaven wasn't the only precept of EBC. Members also appreciated Yu's prominent focus on health and well-being. Ever since his encounter with tuberculosis as a boy, personal hygiene was of the utmost importance to Yu. Because his illness was contagious, it's likely germs were one of his earliest fears. He even claimed that verbal worship at the table allowed for unhygienic specks of spittle to fall into one's food. He forbade his followers from partaking in such irresponsible actions. He also told his members that by scrubbing the body and detoxifying the bloodstream, they were more likely to achieve spiritual purity. Yu's adherents hung on his every word, and he noticed how eager they were for easy answers. Slowly but surely, a business plan percolated in his mind. To answer their prayers in later years, Yu's businesses created health products like portable enema devices, and marketed green tea-based solutions that they claimed would help decontaminate the body of impurity. Of course, he didn't give these items away for free. His employees sold them to his flock at a marked-up price and made money hand over fist. As the years went by, EBC's following and its income continued to grow. Yu wasn't satisfied, though. After all, he preached a philosophy of worship through labor. He felt that he had to embody this ideal in his own life, too. Because his father-in-law was EBC's pastor and principal religious leader, Yu was able to split his time between the church and his other businesses. Throughout the late 1960s and early 1970s, he worked on expanding his portfolio. According to a lawsuit reviewed by Reuters, his big break came in 1976, when he acquired a textile company called Samu Trading Company at 35 years old. He reportedly saw the company as a source for creation of jobs and financial gains for members of EBC. That was only the beginning. Over his lifetime, you would register close to a thousand trademarks and patents. 
But the savvy entrepreneur didn't forget about EBC as he expanded his businesses. Instead, he looked for ways to combine his passions. Two years after purchasing Samwu, Yu transitioned the textile company into a toy manufacturing and exportation venture. And who better to bring in than his own followers? Yu was no longer simply preaching about the merits of labor. Now he was asking his followers to take physical action to solidify their covenant with God. What might have started out as voluntary work here and there evolved into something more binding. Sect members put their hard work and equity into the company. What's more, Yu reportedly encouraged his church members to donate or invest their money in his other companies. By the end of the 1970s, EBC was practically Yu's personal money machine. He promptly used the donations to acquire even more businesses in the name of the church, including a shipbuilding enterprise and a cosmetics line. And Yu wasn't alone. Other South Korean religious groups operating at this time also have been accused of taking advantage of their congregants. The phenomenon may have had its roots in the country's turbulent history. From 1910 to 1945, Japan ruled South Korea with an iron fist. It relegated Koreans to second-class citizens and committed atrocities against them. It's not surprising, then, that many South Koreans became disenchanted with Buddhism, the reigning religion, as a result. Instead, they sought a new doctrine that would protect them from the kinds of suffering they experienced under Japanese rule. Some New Age theologists capitalized on the desperation of the people. Yu was the perfect example of such a leader. At a time when many South Koreans were living in poverty, Yu created an immense source of income for himself and his family. Perhaps some of his followers became wise to his scheme. But if they did, they may have been too afraid to leave the compound. They knew that if they turned away from EBC, they risked losing their spot in heaven. More than that, though, they also risked losing any sense of security they might have had. Many of Yu's adherents simply had nowhere else to go. They devoted their entire lives to his group, perhaps relinquishing their familiar relationships and personal property at the behest of the church. If they wanted to survive, presumably, they had to stick with EBC. In this way, Yu may have broken down his devotees and prevented them from making their own decisions. Yu must have known his followers were struggling to make ends meet, but he seemed to be only focused on getting richer. By the time the 1980s rolled around, he had built a miniature empire. In addition to the toy factory where EBC members worked, he owned a fleet of ferries and peddled a variety of products like shark oil supplements. He tapped in his wife, brothers, and kids to help run some of these businesses. It's unclear what Pastor Kwan's role was in all of it. For his part, however, Yu ran EBC the same way he ran his other companies. To keep things profitable, he needed to ensure new members were joining and paying up. He assigned special disciples to focus on finding new followers. According to an article in Korea Jung Ong Daily, an unnamed elderly widow who we'll call Mi Ai was the target of one of a recruiting push later in 1997. At some point, a group of EBC members befriended Mi Ai, who was known to be wealthy. The woman was receptive to their advances. She might have been lonely and appreciated the attention. Regardless of her reasons, Yu's devotees latched onto Mi Ai and started coming to see her regularly. During their visits, they offered her massages and conversation to earn her trust and appreciation. After a few weeks of this, they finally told her about EBC. They promised Mi Ai that she would be saved if she joined their church. All she had to do was make a financial commitment to the group. 
Soon enough, Mii was regularly buying squalene shark liver oil and shabbily made toys from her new friends. Each box of bottles of squalene cost her about 1.3 million won at the time, or approximately 1,100 US dollars. Then, at some point, the devotees requested an even bigger contribution. Mii was asked to invest in a heaven-like silver town with top-notch medical staff and facilities that EBC was supposedly in the process of building. The elderly woman was sold. She forked over an eye-popping 560 million won and waited for news of the development. But it never materialized. The company went bankrupt and into debt, and Mii lost all her money. When she found out she was broken-hearted, according to her adult children, she fell into a profound sadness and became seriously ill. She eventually passed away after a long hospital stay. While many religious organizations rely on volunteer labor and donations, Yu built his fortune on the backs of people like Mii. He used his spiritual pull to convince vulnerable people that they needed to hand over their assets to achieve salvation. And many were ready to make the sacrifice. With the money flowing freely and followership growing steadily, Yu and EBC looked poised for unstoppable success. But a harrowing discovery in 1987 would threaten to bring it down once and for all. Coming up, the going gets tough, and you runs. And now back to the story. By the late 80s, Yu Byung-un was a multi-millionaire who owned several large companies. He'd achieved his success in part thanks to his devoted congregation at the Evangelical Baptist Church of Korea, which he'd co-founded. His EBC followers were instrumental to his prosperity. Not only did Yu rely on their donations to bring in money, but he also turned to them for cheap labor. And for a while, the strategy seemed to be working. Things were going smoothly for Yu until 1987, when an unexpected tragedy struck. All of a sudden, the fate of the 46-year-old's empire was all too uncertain. On August 29th of that year, a man named Lee Ki Jung reached the end of his rope. His wife and kids had been missing for nearly four days. He searched high and low for them with no luck. That day, in desperation, he decided to go to his wife Park Soon Ja's furniture supply factory. Perhaps she was still there for some reason. She was, and so were her three kids, along with at least 28 other employees. Inside the factory attic, Lee stumbled upon their lifeless bodies, lined up in neat rows. One man hung from the rafters. Lee was horrified. He ran to alert the authorities. As investigators dug into the shocking incident, a strange picture started to emerge. Lee's wife, Park, was the president of Odayong Trading Company and the leader of the Salvation Sect, an EBC splinter group. It turned out that Park had once been part of EBC, but left to form her own group. She was known as the Benevolent Mother and told her devotees that God instructed her to gather her own followers. She promised he would protect them as well, but she didn't hold up her end of the bargain. Park cheated over 220 people out of $8.7 million, some of them members of the Salvation Sect. Eventually, these disgruntled individuals got together and went to the police. And the day Park went missing was about a week after the time authorities started looking into the claims against her. 
The link between the timing of these accusations and the events at the factory has never been officially established. However, authorities do believe the group took part in a mass suicide. Tissues and towels were stuffed in many of the cult members' mouths and noses, and an initial autopsy showed that they had ingested some kind of drug. It's thought that the man who was found hanging on the rafters had poisoned and strangled the other members first. But another question emerged during the course of the investigation, one that connected Park with you. Apparently, a number of financial transactions had taken place between their two spiritual groups before Park's death. Suddenly, Yu's name was closely associated with the horrific discovery. Yu firmly denied any relation to Park's group and rejected allegations of wrongdoing. In the end, police weren't able to find any physical evidence to tie him to the case. Although Yu's name was cleared in relation to the Odai Young tragedy, it didn't mean he was absolved of misconduct in his own church. He'd been on the police's radar for some time because of suspected criminal negligence. Someone connected to him had alerted them of his shady EBC business dealings. For the next four years, authorities steadily built a case against him. Eventually, they found the proof they were looking for. In 1991, Yu was convicted of defrauding his congregants by illegally diverting their tithes to his businesses. He was sentenced to four years in prison, though Yu would continue to claim his innocence for years afterward. The leader didn't stop his pursuits behind bars, however. Ever the entrepreneur, he used the time to write a book called Greater Love Has No One Than This. Meanwhile, the church's operations continued. During Yu's time in prison, EBC remained strong, but many of his other businesses went bankrupt. When asked about losing his fortune, Yu likened his experience to that of a captain going down with his ship. Little did he know how closely that metaphor would fit. While he sat in jail, fuzzy photos of the mysterious tycoon flashed across every newspaper and television screen in South Korea. Suddenly, Yu Byung-un was a household name. Upon his release in 1996, the infamous CEO leveraged his infamy to rebuild his empire. He enlisted his now adult sons to help him buy back some of his former companies. And with the assistance of a government recovery program, a large portion of his debt was forgiven. Before long, Yu and his family had clawed their way back up the financial ladder. Motivated to re-enter the upper echelons they'd once been a part of, they brainstormed ways to turn a profit using the businesses they had left. Ultimately, they decided to focus their efforts on building and operating cargo and passenger ships. The Byung-un family was no stranger to the ferry industry. Before he was imprisoned, Yu had owned a fleet of boats, but it wasn't all smooth sailing. Back in 1991, 14 employees had died when one of his ships ran into another vessel. Yu was never held liable for the accident. Despite his less than sterling record, Yu forged ahead with his latest venture. On February 24, 1999, he established Chunghe Jin Marine Company, which consisted of a small fleet of ferry boats, including the Sewol. Yu placed his family and loyal devotees in executive positions throughout the company. For the next 15 years, Yu continued to work on his business portfolio and simultaneously run EBC. He also revisited his artistic childhood passions, even taking up a new creative avenue with nature photography. His work was displayed at the Louvre and the Palace of Versailles. 
However, it later came out that companies connected to Chung Hae Jin had purchased the photographs for tens of millions of dollars. You may have been a little too preoccupied with his many responsibilities and hobbies. Though he might have been able to connect to the great outdoors, he had been neglecting his ship company. And the cronies he'd placed at the helm weren't really picking up the slack. It seemed that making money was all that mattered to them. Things like safety concerns were relegated to the bottom of their to-do lists. Unsurprisingly, by early 2014, the lack of oversight set the stage for disaster. Not long before, the ferries were renovated so that they could take on more weight. Extra berths were added to the ships, making them so top-heavy that they lurched during cargo loading. According to later investigations, though Yu wasn't the ferry company's CEO, he allegedly made the decisions for the company. He also reportedly received an additional salary of nearly $10,000 a month for it. Though the family representatives have denied his direct involvement, presumably, as long as the ships could be as profitable as possible, Yu was happy with the alterations. Despite such an obvious flaw, on the morning of April 16th, crew members overloaded freight onto one of the ferries named the Sewol. Later interviews with crew members allege that the amount of cargo was so large on its daily trips that often they didn't even have room to fasten it for safety. As if this wasn't dangerous enough, crew members also admitted they often failed to secure passenger cars and trucks safely on board. They even mishandled their own shipping containers. Some of them were tied down with rope instead of the required chain link, and others were left entirely unstable. According to the New York Times, Yu's company would essentially bribe inspectors to get away with their violations. They would whisk officials on trips to the Korean island of Jeju for expensive meals and wine, presumably for help in clearing the boat to set sail. Had the regulators actually taken time to examine the vessel, they would have seen just how grossly overburdened it really was. Yet the Sewol was given the green light anyway on April 16, 2014. She disembarked and cut slowly across the Yellow Sea. The current was strong that day, and when the stand-in captain made a sharp turn, the top-heavy boat keeled over. The untethered cargo slid down the deck, flipping the ferry even further on its side. Then the rig capsized entirely. Cold seawater rushed through the halls and into the passenger areas. More than 300 people died in the disaster. Most of the casualties were students in their second year of high school. Their vice principal, Kang Min Kyu, had planned the trip as a gift for the students. He hoped the fun outing would help alleviate some of the stress of their year-end exams. Vice Principal Kong was one of 172 survivors of the incident. Two days afterward, he died by suicide. Authorities found a devastating farewell letter in which he vowed to continue teaching his dearly departed students in the afterlife. In the wake of the calamity, the entire nation was traumatized. But the survivors who'd been aboard the Sewol Ferry felt the effects most keenly. A 2015 study published in the journal Epidemiology and Health assessed the psychological impact of the tragedy on the city of Ansan, where most of the passengers were from. Researchers found that six months after the event, Ansan residents displayed a much higher number of mental health issues compared to unaffected areas. Depression and suicidal ideation were the most commonly reported symptoms, and women were more likely than men to experience these feelings. The people of South Korea were hurting, and they wanted someone to pay. 
As the head of the family that owned the boat, Yu Byung-an quickly became the prime suspect. The prosecution got to work preparing their case against the disgraced businessman and spiritual leader. They planned to charge him with negligent homicide. In the meantime, South Korea's Ministry of Justice banned Yu, his oldest son, and dozens of his associates from leaving the country. But before they could detain him, Yu vanished without a trace. The government mobilized as best it could to find the missing tycoon, embarking on the nation's largest manhunt to date. In all, they deployed nearly 8,000 officers to search for Yu. Some of Yu's children couldn't be located either. Initially, law enforcement offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. When they failed to make any headway by late May, they increased the prize to $500,000. Despite their best efforts, however, the police kept coming up empty-handed. Then, on June 12th, officials received a call. Early that morning, a farmer found a heavily decomposed body in his plum orchard. It was shrouded in an expensive-looking Italian jacket. Lying next to it was a copy of Yu's book, Greater Love Has No One Than This. Nearby, there was a magnifying glass, several bottles of booze, and an empty bottle of squalene. The farmer called the police to his property, about 200 miles south of Seoul. They determined that the genetic material on the remains was similar to that of Yu's family. Dental examinations and fingerprint sourcing backed up the findings. Eventually, they were able to confirm that the person in the plum orchard was the country's most wanted criminal, 73-year-old Yu Byung-an himself. The autopsy was inconclusive, and its official cause of death was never confirmed. However, the Central Legal Medical Center noted that, despite the bottles at the scene, there was no evidence of alcohol poisoning. Yet even now, with clear evidence to the contrary, some EBC members refuse to accept that their leader is gone. At the time of his death, the group was reported to have over 200,000 members, though some believe this number may actually be closer to 10,000. While Yu managed to garner the adoration of so many, his life ended the same way it began, in total isolation. And until the very end, he showed no regard for those around him. His only concerns were for himself and his ill-gotten fortune. Thanks for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Lori Siegel, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 